0: So our readings this morning come from, uh, the first reading comes from Philippians, comes from Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the and every tongue, I said that to the glory of God the Father. Our next passage is from First Corinthians. This follows on from our um, readings and our um, sermons that we've been having recently about First Corinthians. Our studies. Paul is talking to uh, the Corinthian church who have many problems and divisive opinions. Um, Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is relevant to every dimension of church life. And he writes of God's empowering grace and the need to know Christ alone and him crucified. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians 1. 10, verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf... We who are many are one body, for we will all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And then into chapter 11, first verse. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ.
1: Do you want me to... I thought I was going to have to shout the whole time. Good morning. It's lovely to be with you. Uh, as Colin said, my, my name is, is Daniel. You can call me Dan. Uh, but why don't I pray for us as we look at the Bible. Now, Father, please capture us this morning with the things of Christ. I pray that we might see his example that we might love others, and that we might do everything for your glory, and we ask it in your name. Amen. Now, I've got a couple of things up on the screen that I'll I'll put up one at a time. The first one is an ad for Menulog. Has everyone seen this ad? They're they're pretty creative, aren't they, the Menulog crew, But, but this one... The tagline is "Treat yourself" or "Treat yourself." <laughs> See the, the the guy; I think he's fed his cat or something like that. And then the the thing is, oh, well, you deserve a little bit of manu Treat yourself. Second one, KFC. Now, who hasn't had this in their head <laughs> when they watch TV? You know, there, there's an awkward moment, and then someone says, "Did someone say KFC?" And then the song comes on. I don't care. I love it. Now, I have to say, I don't love the ad, but there you go. Second ad. Third one is a quote from Dr. Seuss Be who you are and say how you feel because those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind. Now, those three things up on the screen, I want you to talk to the person next to you. What do they have in common? Or I'd love to hear some thoughts. Anyone got any thoughts? What do they have in common? KFC, Menulog and Dr. Seuss. Sounds like a bad joke. Anyone got any thoughts? It's all about me. It's all about me. Yeah. All about me. Self-centred. It is interesting, isn't it, that I, I pick those things because I take it in some ways they are our cultural creeds at the moment. I do what I want to do, and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. I wonder if you've noticed, over the last few decades, there has been a massive shift in our culture towards the self, so that your meaning, your satisfaction in life, well, how do you find it? You look within. How do you find who you are? Look within. The self has become the ultimate goal of our lives, That is a radical cultural shift. And every day of our lives, we are being fed that expression, aren't we? Philosophers, one of them, the name Charles Taylor, he's a Canadian philosopher, he's kind of made this term popular, expressive individualism. That's how he's described our age. That is that we are so self-centred as a culture that each of us is realising our own selves, our own ways. And what do you do with that? It is such a pervasive thing in our culture, isn't it? And in the midst of that culture, a couple of days ago, a massive event has happened, hasn't it? Queen Elizabeth died. And she was an extraordinary lady by all accounts, wasn't she? I wonder if you've read some of the reflections on her life. Three words that I take it keep coming up is service... Dedication and duty. Service, dedication and duty. All people who have reflected on her have noticed those things, that she lived an extraordinary life of service, of other person-centeredness. One reporter that I heard yesterday called them old-fashioned values. Now, isn't that interesting? I take it that's a mark of how far we've moved as a culture, to call those values old fashioned and fondly. But that's not where we are anymore, the reporter was saying. But here's the thing even though our culture is moving towards the individual, we still get this sense, don't we, that there is something deeply attractive about that, about a life of love for the other, of service. And this morning what we're going to see is is God's word cuts against the grain of our culture. Completely against the grain of our culture. As God calls us to love others and to glorify him with our lives. That is a radically different message from our culture and it is a different message than you will hear tomorrow and the next day. And so we need to take special care that we hear God's word this morning as he speaks to us. But what I want to do with you is suggest that Paul, in answer to the Corinthian question, what do I do with my freedom, says two things. Love others and glorify God. But as he does that, I want you to look at verse, chapter 11, verse 1. It's got to be the most unfortunate chapter break in the Bible, doesn't it? But have a look down there. It is part of our passage. It's the end of our passage. Chapter 11, verse 1. As Paul concludes this section, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I want to suggest that's the key to our passage. So before we look at what it means to love others and to glorify God, I want to take us back to the example of Christ. So will you turn with me to Philippians 2. Not hearing a lot of flicking, but I, I trust some of you are on digital Bibles, and that's okay. Philippians 2, I'd love you to turn there. It's a wonderful passage. This is the example of our Lord Jesus. And it is an extraordinary passage, isn't it? As Paul says, verse 5, pick it up there. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who. Being in very nature God. Being in very nature God. Jesus is God himself. Paul's saying, Jesus is God from God. But what did he do? Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Isn't that a staggering verse in the Bible? That Jesus, being the Lord of all, didn't consider his godness something to be used for himself. And yet he made himself nothing. Taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, even to death on a cross. That is an extraordinary statement, isn't it? That the Lord of the universe, God himself, Jesus came down to our world and stooped to become a man. Why? So that he was obedient to death for us. Because it is in his death that he took the penalty for our sin. That we had ignored God, rejected him... In his death, he takes the penalty for our sin on himself so that we might be forgiven. That is an extraordinary act of love. That being himself God, he came into our world to save us. So that those who trust in him, Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation. All of your sin is washed clean. That is our example but it is also our hope and our salvation, isn't it? It is a glorious truth. And through all of it, Jesus looked to the glory of God his Father. The night before he dies, he says, Not my will, but yours be done. As he goes to the cross. Through his whole life, Jesus was obedient to God his Father, faithful to him to the end. So that verse 11 It is all to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the model of Christ? The one who is himself our freedom and our salvation is also our example. That he would love others and glorify God his Father. As we've been reflecting on the Queen, one of the striking statements that she says, uh, that she said when she was 21, was this. She says, "I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service." And by all accounts, she did that for a long time until she died. It's an extraordinary picture, isn't it, of a of a ruler who actually lived for service. And I take it what's remarkable about Queen Elizabeth is all the more remarkable about the Lord Jesus. That being Lord of all, he says he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is our example, brothers and sisters. And so as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, do you see what a high calling that is? To live like the Lord Jesus. He is our salvation and our example. And I want to suggest it's only when we are transformed by that that we can love others to the glory of God. Have you been captured, been transformed at the foot of the cross? Have you come to know Jesus? Because when you do, the others flow. So seeing Christ's example, let's turn to our passage, to love others. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 23. Paul's quoting the Corinthians, and he says, as they have said to him, I have the right to do anything. It was their slogan. But not everything is beneficial, Paul says. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And then he says this no one should seek their own good but the good of others. No one should seek their own good. But the good of others. That is a radically countercultural statement, isn't it? See, in a world that says, seek your good and ignore anything else that contradicts it, Paul says this seek their good, not your own. It is a radical self sacrificial love. Do you see how countercultural this message is? To look outward to the love of others. In the early church, a sociologist named Rodney Stark, who wrote a book in the 90s, he 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 wasn't a Christian, he was trying to work out what what happened. How did this Christian, this Christ and and his group of fishermen, how did they transform the world? What happened? And so he sought to to kind of investigate, did a history of it. And here's one of the things he concluded He says this, that the teachings that God demonstrates his love through sacrifice and that therefore his followers demonstrate their love through sacrifice on behalf of one another. These were revolutionary ideas. Revolutionary ideas to have a God who would sacrifice himself and call his followers to do otherwise, to to do the same. And he goes on, as he reflects on this pattern, in the early centuries there were terrible plagues that happened and so whole cities would be abandoned. They didn't know what was causing it and so people would flee the city and left behind were were sick and dying people and no one wanted to care for them. They didn't want to go back. But who stayed behind? Very often it was Christians, at great cost to themselves. They stayed behind and cared for the sick and the dying. Sometimes to the cause of their own death. And you know what happened? The world started to notice that these people really have been captured by love. By the love of their God as they seek to love others. Profound testimony. And Stark says that is part of why Christianity exploded. Because people sought to live out a life of love. It is a profound mark of one who has been changed by Christ, isn't it? That we love others sacrificially. And I take it in our world, very much like the Corinthian world, when, when people desire their own interest, it is a powerful testimony that we have been transformed by Jesus. But Paul says love for others is flexible, culturally, while it's theologically Rigid. We've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? In in chapter 8, Paul talks about this at great length and he describes food sacrificed to idols. What do you do with a weak conscience brother? We're picking that up in a summary here, but let me read the passage. Verse 25 Eat anything sold in the market, in the meat market, Paul says, without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring, Paul says, to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of something I thank God for? Now, there's a fair bit in that, isn't there? Part of what Paul's doing is he's summarising chapter 8 and chapter 9, and he's drawing some principles together for us. Here's what he's saying. He's saying to the Corinthian church, you have been set free by the blood of Jesus, The Corinthian church was a mixed bag of people who were Jews, pagans, all sorts, saying to the Jews, you have been set free by Christ out of the law. You no longer have to keep it. So that you go to the meat market, the food is clean. Whatever's happened to it, you can eat it. Go to an unbeliever's place and and the food that used to be unclean. If your conscience is clear, take part in the meal. For the pagans who used to... Worship the gods of Rome and Greece. Paul says, actually, you know that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You can eat the meat. It is clean for you. It is okay. But notice, if someone says, this has been offered in sacrifice, Paul says, don't eat it. Why? The same principle that allowed them to eat with the unbeliever which is that love doesn't exercise our own rights but places them under for the freedom of the other. Let me explain. As as people eat with the unbeliever, Paul's saying, actually, your goal is to love them. Eat with them. But if someone says this has been offered in sacrifice so that you don't cause them to stumble into idolatry, don't eat the food then. Always, Paul says, look to the interests of the other. Love is flexible culturally. Paul goes on in verse 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. We have one unchanging message don't we the, the, the good news of Jesus, that he has come, he died, he rose again, he is the Lord, and he is the only way to heaven. As Paul says in chapter 1, Christ crucified is what we proclaim. We cannot change that message. But as we seek to proclaim that message, Paul says, get rid of any obstacles to people hearing it. Because it is not worth someone stumbling at something unimportant when they come to hear about the Lord Jesus. I remember a couple of years ago, I went to a church in Sydney with my father-in-law, my wife. And in many senses, it was okay. We, we, we sat in the church, we heard a sermon. There were a fair few traditions, lots of rituals. But the sermon was about Jesus. And as I, I walked out of the car park with my father-in-law, I, I turned to him and said, you know, how would you find it? How was it? And he, I'm not going to repeat exactly what he said, but he said to me, it's just a bunch of religious people. I felt like I shouldn't even be there. Isn't that a tragedy? That he came and couldn't even hear the message of truth. Not that he didn't hear it with his ears, but that it was, it was like he wasn't welcome. And it caused him to walk out going, I don't think I belong there. We have a powerful part to play to welcome people to hear the message of truth. It is too important otherwise. That as people come in here, may it not be like that. That they come and and I want to say, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian this morning, can I add my welcome? It really is great that you're here. This is the place where believers gather and you are welcome. welcome to come and investigate the Lord Jesus. We want church to be like that, don't we, that we, we worship our Savior, and he is for all people, to come and to hear about this message. Be flexible culturally in every way you can so that the truth, the unchanging message of the good news of Jesus might be clear. Can I encourage you that it is worth thinking about how you come to church, who you talk to, who you sit with, how you show love to others so that they might hear about the good news of Jesus. Use your freedom for the good of others. But what is the ultimate good of others? Look at what Paul says so that they might be saved. Do you see where Paul's heading the whole time? That we we love others, why? So that they might be saved. See, we need to lift our eyes to see the eternal realities of what's going on. Eternity is real. There is a heaven and hell, and there is one way to be saved. The Lord Jesus. There is a day when he is coming back. And all people will stand before the judge of the universe. And on that day, there is one way to be saved. And we know of this salvation, don't we? We have the words of eternal life. Paul's saying, in every way, we seek that as many as possible might be saved. See, we live in a spiritual disaster zone. You know, I was at Aaron Affair a couple of days ago, and I looked out, uh, you, you know, at the top there, and you can look out at all the, all the cafes and that kind of things. I know you guys probably go to Westfield. I normally do as well. But you look out at the shops, right? It, it, it's a lovely day. We live in a lovely world, don't we? Lots of things to enjoy. And there are 350,000 people on the Central Coast. And most of them are heading to an eternity without Jesus. And it is so hard to remember that, isn't it? But we must hear God's word and be captured by his truths. Because we are living in the shadow of eternity. And we have one short life now until the Lord Jesus comes. I know I shared about this movie, Dante's Peak, a picture up on the screen, earlier this year. But I find bad movies have good illustrations. And I'm not very creative, and so I'm going to use it again. But I want you to picture Dante's Peak. It's a little town with a volcano at the end. So that's never going to end well, is it? When you When you live next to a, a volcano, they they send a guy named uh, Harry Dalton, a volcanologist, to come and investigate the volcano. They do some. He does some tests, and he realizes, Oh, actually, this is not good. <laughs> this thing's going to blow. <clears throat> you know, it wouldn't wouldn't be a very good movie otherwise. But anyway, he calls in his crew, the the volcanologist crack squad, and they come in. And they start setting up an office. And they start running more tests. And they go, yeah, yeah, it looks like it's going to blow. And so they go out to coffee in the town. They're starting to really enjoy it. And they go, oh, let's not worry the people. You know? There's good sandwiches here. Let's just do a couple more tests. We don't want to panic people. It's going to go. But, you know, for now, let's just run a couple more tests, do some more meetings, have some more coffee. And at the same time, Harry Dalton is madly running around the town going, We've got to get out. Now, I wonder which volcanologist you are more like. We live in a time of urgency. Heaven and hell are real, and people are going to one of two places. I wonder if we get stuck with the coffee and the good sandwiches. You know, this life is wonderful. It is, God gives us good gifts, but we need to remember there is an urgent task that we have. I wonder if today God is pressing on your heart to do something about that. To talk to your family member, your friend, who you've been meaning to talk to. I wonder if, I, I take it it would be worthwhile for you to write down, maybe now or at some point today, three names of people you want to pray for, you want to invite. Invite them to church. Pray for them that God might change their heart. We live in a time and then comes eternity. And the highest good we can ever love others is to offer them Jesus. Following Christ's example, we love others and we do it for the glory of God. Have a look at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's a big verse, isn't it? Whether you eat or drink or actually, Paul says, whatever you do, your whole life, do it all for God, for his glory, for his praise. What does that look like? Well, as we finish, I want to suggest three things. First, it is to know his glory. As we read the scriptures, as we see what God has done in Christ, who he is, that he is the Lord of the universe, that he holds everything in the palm of his hand, that every moment of every day he sustains our lives. He is worthy of our glory, of our praise, because he is glorious, isn't he? He is a wonderful God who has saved us. Know his glory and praise him for it. Now, if we're persuaded of who God is, here's what comes. We live for his glory because our life stops becoming about us. We are not at the center of our universe. God is, and so we live for him. It is at total odds to expressive individualism, isn't it? Actually, we live for his glory. For the glory of our Heavenly Father. But do you see how once we see what Christ has done, how can we live any other way but to live for him? To misquote Dr. Seuss, we don't live for ourselves, but we be who he wants you to be. Do what he wants you to do. Because the one who matters deserves all the glory. Glory. So live for him. See the Corinthian question is what is lawful? I have the right to do anything, they say so I can do whatever I like. Paul flips the question what's going to please your heavenly father? And that is the secret to Christian living, isn't it? How in my life right now am I going to please my heavenly father? What will make God look great? See, it's easy, even when we do good things, like when we serve at church, when we read our Bible, when, when we love other people, it's easy to do those things, isn't it, for our glory? So people might look at us and go, Ah, oh, they're all right. <laughs> now, this side of eternity, we will never do things perfectly, will we? But as we seek to be more transformed by Christ, it is more of him and less of me as we seek to do things for His glory. Live for His glory and lastly, desire His praise. See, when we seek God's glory, the approval that matters to us is His, isn't it? Do you long for His praise, for His glory? Because I tell you what, when, when we follow Jesus, sometimes that's all we get. <laughs> You know the times when you do something really costly, really hard, maybe at work, at home, when no one's watching, when you forgive someone who's deeply hurt you and no one even knows about it? We don't get any praise sometimes, do we, <laughs> from people? In fact, sometimes we do things for the sake of Jesus and people think we're terrible <laughs> for it. What's going to sustain us in those moments is his praise. His praise. Why do we make costly decisions for Jesus? Because we seek his glory. And we want to pray that that might be enough for us. Because that's where we're heading, isn't it? An eternity where we will sing his praise. In Revelation 5, John sees a vision of eternity with every creature in heaven and on earth all crying out, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. That is where we are heading. And it is a wonderful hope. So as we finish, in a culture that says, be who you want to be, we have been given a far more wonderful way to live, haven't we? To love others. To glorify God after the example of our Saviour that in everything God might receive the praise. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for what you have done for us. That Christ came into our world being God and yet didn't consider that his own advantage, but made himself nothing so that we might be free. We pray that as as we seek to be transformed by these things, that we might love others for your glory. Amen.